You are listening to a recording by Lisa Page. For further information about events, programs, or mentoring, please visit www.lisapage.com. That's L-I-S-A-P-A-G-E dot com. Okay, so welcome to Lisa Page Live Radio. Thank you so very much for being here. I know that some of you have been waiting on the line for uh, about five or ten minutes now, ready to go. So thank you to those of you who have come early. And I can already see a hand up ready to ask a question, which is just spectacular. So thank you for being here. I'm Lisa Page. And here at Lisa Page Live, what we do essentially is we dive into intimate conversations about what I call wild love. And I mean love with a capital L, this, this big love that that lives and breathes us all, as well as embodied awakening and succulent success. And today, my guest is Mirabai Star. So what an exquisite diving partner to be sharing a conversation about her work at Caravan of No Despair. Now, some of you may be like me. You may already be a lover of Mirabai's work. If you're new to her work, then you're really in for a soul treat today. You know, I first came across Mirabai's work many years ago when I read her exquisite translation of Dark Night of the Soul. And then it happened last year that our poetry was published in the same book, a book um, collated and edited by Andrew Harvey and Jay Ramsey, called Diamond Cutters, Visionary Poets of America, Britain and Oceania. And I saw that Mirabai was in this book and I started reading her work again. And then I came across her latest book, Caravan of No Despair. And really it was when I read this book that I just knew I had to bring her on the show and share her with you. Reading Caravan of No Despair, I kid you not, totally broke me open in such a profound way. And if you haven't read it yet, you must. And I'll tell you why. My experience of Caravan of No Despair is is that Mirabai doesn't just take you on her journey, right? She she tells her story and it's in a way that is gritty and real and, and tender and courageous. But I didn't feel like I was just on her journey with her. I felt at the same time that I was journeying through my own story of, of love and loss and yearning and devotion and disappointment and hope and betrayal and agony and, and ecstasy and, and death and rebirth. And, and I really felt that her gift was to be able to write it in such a way that she could she could take me into the, the, the blood and bones of her own soul and, um, and of her beautiful daughter, Jenny's soul, and, and of my own soul. And I felt that was such a gift. And just speaking with others now when I've read it, they, they felt the same. So Mirabai is an award-winning author and a translator of the mystics, and she's a visionary teacher who really is passionate about the transformative power of loss and longing and also the interconnectedness, this, 
this one wisdom, this one love, this one freedom that is at the core of all parts. And to find out more about her work, I want to share her website straight up front uh, so that you've got it down if you haven't already. It's mirabystar.com, M-I-R-A-B-A-I-S-T-A-R-R.com, mirabystar.com. And today, Mirabai and I are going to dive into what do you do when the dark night descends and what does it mean to hold your own feet to the fire and this sometimes messy place where spiritual practice and personal development and transfiguration kind of meet. And we'll talk about your story and, and when, it, when it matters and when to let it go and, and how to experience both tragedy and triumph in your life as a way to embody this love you are so that you can be remade by love is the way that I would uh, phrase it, especially when all hope seems to be lost. So I know that you're all just itching to speak with Mirabai. I'm going to open her line in a moment. I just want to let you know how you can participate on the call today. So we're going to dive into a really juicy conversation and we want you to be a part of it. So there'll be uh, times when I'll open the line to answer your questions. If you've dialed in by telephone or the web call button, then all you need to do is press star 2 to raise your hand. Okay, so just press star 2 to raise your hand. Uh, and there's already a hand raised, so we'll answer them in order as they come up. If you are listening via the webcast, then type your question into the question box. There is a little uh, email uh, box there. You don't have to put your email address in there. Just type your question and your name would be lovely so we can uh, know who we're speaking to. But if you want to be anonymous, you can be anonymous too. So, and the other thing I'd say is turn everything else off. Really let the next 55 minutes with Mirabai be a deep dive immersion. Uh, so turn off any tabs, put a do not disturb sign on your door so you can really be here and, and make the most of it. So with all that said, let's uh, welcome, let me open Mirabai's line and welcome Mirabai. Mm, thank you, Lisa, and thank you for that lovely introduction. Mm, my pleasure. Thank you so much for for being here. I know that I shared with you a rather long email after I had spent literally, uh, I think within 24 hours I read Caravan of No Despair. Mm. I only put it down to sleep and that was because I started at five o'clock in the afternoon and at some point I thought, Lisa, <laughs> you've got to sleep, you've got to eat and really that, in all honesty, they were the only times that I put it down. It just felt mm. like such, such a a breaking open that was not interruptible. So uh, what I want to know first of all from you is for someone who hasn't perhaps read Caravan of No Despair yet, I don't know how to explain it in a nutshell, but if, if you were to, to share the essence of your memoir, how would you do that? 
Well, you know, any any good memoir um, revolves around a story. It's it's not mm-hmm. like an autobiography where you just kind of follow the the arc of your whole life. There's usually some kind of pivotal event that the memoir hangs on, and and so even though this is a spiritual memoir. Um, it's also a literary memoir. It's a, it's a story, you know, that that's told mm-hmm. with care and attention to language. So, um, so what happened? The story is very briefly, in a nutshell, that the day that my first book came out, which happened to be a translation of *Dark Night of the Soul* by the 16th-century Spanish mystic John of the Cross, and is very much. Um, a quintessential teaching on the transformational power of suffering. My Mm. 14-year-old daughter, Jenny, was killed in a car accident. So that literally these two two events coincided. I had just had my first advanced copy delivered to my door. You know, your first book, yay. But I was uh, not really paying any attention because the night before Jenny... Um, had taken off in my car at age 14 and disappeared and had been missing all night. And this was the next day when the book when the book arrived and I I knew in my bones that it was bad, you know, that she had not been found. And then a half an hour after the book was delivered, I hadn't even opened it. Um, I mean, my mom opened the package because she was here with me. We were all, everybody was gathered around the house waiting and trying to help. Um, but a half an hour later, the police came to the door and told me that they had found her and she was uh, she was gone, that she had died alone in, in the mountains, rolled, rolled the car. Uh, we live up in the mountains in northern New Mexico, and she drove very fast down a mountain road. Um, so that that's the way the story begins, and that's the, what, it, what it keeps circling back to, is not just that it was my first book, but that the teachings themselves of the Dark Night of the Soul by John of the Cross both irritated the hell out of me and saved my life as I tried to navigate that landscape of radical loss. And, of course, in telling that story, I found, and see if you guys who are listening can relate, that that loss wasn't isolated. All the losses of my life came up. It's like they were all triggered by the loss of yeah. my daughter. And I've had a lot of deaths in my life, but nothing compared compared to the to the loss of my child. It was in a different universe. Nevertheless, mm-hmm. in attempting to tell the story of what I went through in my plunging into my own dark night. Um, I found that I had to refer to to all of the other significant losses. So I, there are a lot of flashbacks to my crazy counterculture childhood with early hippie parents and some other mm-hmm. things, the, uh, very bad behavior with from a, a spiritual teacher, self-appointed mm-hmm. spiritual teacher, mm-hmm. and so on. So there's a lot of a lot of other stories within this story. How's that for a nutshell? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, you know, I guess then then the question is, I mean, I know that you teach people. One of, one of the workshops that you lead is, is, is teaching people how to write their story as, mm-hmm. 
as a transformational journey and and uh, as a a piece of work I'm imagining that is an an, an embodiment, an expression of the the life, the love, the loss, the, and the transformation that that naturally happens through experiencing that. And and I guess that's the other thing I want to know is for you the the writing of this was there something that did you just wake up one day and say okay I, I've got to I've got to share this story or mm. did you feel compelled to or did you just so freaking not want to but you felt you had to right. or like do you know what I mean like what was yes, it that yes. yeah All that of kind that. of drew you into the writing of your own story because and and how was that as a as a process and as an experience to actually write it. Right. Yeah, that's a that's a beautiful question, Lisa. Because I had many books after Dark Night of the Soul, as you know, and most yeah. of my other books have been tran- either translations, more translations of the mystics. I translated Teresa of Avila, um, three books of mm-hmm. Teresa of Avila, who was John of the Cross's mentor, really, his guru. <laughs> and um, And then I did other books of other Christian mystics, which is kind of ironic and I talk about it in the book because my I was born Jewish and then my background is Hindu, Buddhist, Sufi, everything but Christian. <laughs> but yeah. I did get sort of on this train of the Christian mystics and it's been it's been good, but this was the first book really in my own voice. I had another book right before this one called God of Love, a guide to the heart of Judaism, Christianity and Islam in which I had little vignettes of personal stories that as they related specifically to the interconnected wisdom of of the Abrahamic faith. You know, because mm-hmm. as a woman, I find that mm-hmm. personal stories are such a vital, vibrant, alive way to convey perennial wisdom teachings. I can't stand being Absolutely. preached at. Like, when I yeah. open up a, a sort of self-help book or a, a book where somebody's mansplaining me, I just have yeah. the patience for it. <laughs> and so I would, give me a juicy story yeah. and I'll listen to anything. So anyway, mm. it was um, it was time. It was time to speak in my own voice. I'd been kind of hiding behind these mystics. I mean, very happily so and and with yeah. great attention to the beauty of language. It was a very creative, um, fertile 10 or 12 years. But I always knew from the time that Jenny died and these two things came together, the, the book, The Dark Night of the Soul and, and her death, that I had to tell the story eventually. And I tried to write it a few times, actually, and it didn't, it didn't work. It, was, it felt like a journal, like a, an anguished right. mother's journal. And there's nothing uh. wrong with that. But it's, what you mm. said, Lisa, in your introduction was that somehow my story became your story, became everyone, yeah. I hope everyone's story and that that bridge between the personal and the universal couldn't happen Mm -hmm. until it was time it 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 had to ripen in me and Mm -hmm. I was finally asked to write this book so I was compelled um Tammy Simon who founded the the beautiful company Sounds True uh who Mm -hmm. who used to just do audio of spiritual teachers and now they do books um, did an audio with me, did a, actually a podcast with me, and after that said, you know what, this is this is a book, and I would love the mm. chance to publish it if you're 
if you're willing to have, let me take a look. And so I need, I'm someone who needs to be invited. All my books are invitations. Right. And so I, I did. But here's the thing. I was writing about a transformational experience, which was the stripping of my soul that happened when my daughter died, where I was just taken down. It was a yeah. deep descent, and I was emptied. Um, mm-hmm. It was like a forest fire that, that swept through the landscape of my life, and it, and it all burned down to the ground. So the transformation that I was writing about happened very gradually and very na- uh, kind of organically or naturally. It wasn't mm-hmm. like I had this big dramatic awakening. Epiphany. <laughs> Yeah, Yeah. it was more like I just showed up for the whole damn thing. I didn't turn away from it. And little by little, that shattering became something else, you know, Mm. that phoenix that you alluded to. But here's the other thing. So I wrote about a transformational experience, but the writing itself transformed me. I mean, I guess I should have expected that. I'd certainly heard <laughs> heard about mm. this phenomenon that writing, and yeah. I've experienced it, that writing itself is a tr- can be a spiritual tool for, for really powerful transformation. But it really was. And just mm. like with Jenny's death, I had to show up, and I couldn't turn away from the hard stuff. Like I had a friend mm. in the very beginning tell me, if you're going to write this memoir, you can't try to make yourself look good. Just forget about yeah. it. Be yeah. real. Be authentic. Be yeah. radically authentic. Be naked. Yeah. Be vulnerable. Be yeah. funny. What you know? All yeah. the things that you are. Be you. Be yeah. you. Right. And exactly. And so by being authentic, by being me, and uh, which is a little self-deprecating and a little humorous and a little irreverent, um, mm-hmm. and deeply devotional, I mm-hmm. was able to be truly transformed by my my experience of showing up for my story because I didn't mm. turn away, just like I didn't turn away from Jenny's death and from my own yeah. uh, unbearable suffering. I didn't turn yeah. away from the, the raw truth-telling, <laughs> as you know, Lisa, as you read, mm. of this book. And it seems to be that that's the alchemy. That's the transmutation yeah. of the lead into gold that made it accessible yeah. to so many people. You know, I, I, I experienced that as, you know, my recalibration is Lisa, just stay in the deep waters. <laughs> yeah. Don't, 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 but, you know, like I, I read when you, I'm paraphrasing, but basically um, that, um, and I'll use the same language that you used because I was like, it's so true that even as fucked up as, as it felt, as it was, you somehow didn't turn away, that you, yeah. that you just stayed with it, that you just kept, you know, um, turning toward, you know, you just kept showing up. And, 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 it, and it isn't a one-step, two-step, three-step process and, yeah. right. and, and you're free in it, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's... it's Every moment, it's right. it's almost like I, I feel it's almost like you know she this 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 she he this love it's kind of and what about now and what about now mm. and what about now and can and can you stay with me now can you 
can you not close off, shut down, turn away? But just as you said, just showed up for the whole damn thing, which was moment after moment after moment. And I think that anyone who's been through any uh, tragedy of, of loss knows that there, you know, you have these moments where you think it, it just cannot get any more excruciating than this. Mm-hmm. And, and then there are other moments that are less or more excruciating, but somehow that, that capacity to just stay with it, you know, to stay, to, sh- to show up, I think is exactly right. That's where the, that's where the gold is. It really is. Yeah. And it, it's not easy, and which is one of the things then I'm called to ask you because, you know, you had spent an entire lifetime uh, practicing, in a sense, you know, spiritual practice. Uh, you're a bit like me. You have a background of pujas and practices and ashrams and meditation, and yeah. right? And yet when the moment comes, <laughs> then what? And so that's right. what I wanted to ask you then because I just spent time with my father, who, as you know, who, who had passed in November, mm. and he never did any spiritual practice, right? And neither did all the people he was in care with. And they, uh, my dad had early onset Alzheimer's. Mm. And there's something that gets stripped away with Alzheimer's, right? Mm. And it, what is left is the feeling Bod, the feeling body containing the soul. That's the best way for me mm. to describe it. That's what's left. So that's what my dad would respond to, which mm. was such an exquisite teaching for me. Now, he didn't know, he didn't, you know, spend hours in spiritual practice like me, but he was embodying that, that responsiveness to the moment, the next moment, the ne- next moment. Mm. Uh, and I know that there are people on, who are listening to this who might have done some spiritual practice or personal development or who have done none. And so my question is then, how, how would you guide someone to just try showing up again and again and again? What do you say to someone in order to, to support that process or to help them in that especially when it's excruciating right yeah it's you know i think we're conditioned in in many spiritual traditions to view spiritual practice as a kind of um rigorous uh discipline that's kind of uh what am i what's the word i'm looking for like sober and serious and yeah um, challenging and and that if we can just engage in that, then we will transcend the yes. painful experience that we're having. And I think that's a very masculine, patriarchal mm-hmm. model of spiritual life. And it has its place, you know, those kinds of mm. practices and those that that vertical ascension beyond the mm-hmm. the forms. All of that, you know, ha- has a place in our spiritual lives. However, it's not the whole story. And the feminine 
way, I think, is much more about embodiment and being fully here in the in the midst of the messy human experience and connecting and allowing our hearts to open and to sometimes break open. And mm. and so for me, I think my journey as a grieving mother was a very feminine one. It was messy. <laughs> it was not pretty yeah. sometimes. Yeah. I didn't always behave um, in a dignified mm. fashion, shall we say. And, yeah. <laughs> and it was, but it was a commitment to, yeah. well, can I read a passage, uh, a couple of paragraphs? Yeah, please. Is that Absolutely. all right? Because we have, we have a, some time and space, which is lovely. Yeah. Um, this is a, from the chapter called Heartfulness Practice. With reticence at first and then with mounting courage, I dared to mourn my child. From the very beginning, I suspected that something holy was happening and that if I were to push it away, I would regret it for the rest of my life. There was this sense of urgency, as if turning from death meant turning from my child. I wanted to offer Jenny the gift of my commitment to accompany her and her journey away from me, even if to do so simply meant dedicating my heartbeat and my breath to her and paying attention. And so I showed up. When a feeling I did not think I could survive would threaten to engulf me, I practiced turning toward it with the arms of my soul outstretched. And then my heart would unclench a little and make space for the pain. Years of contemplative practice had taught me just enough to know better than to believe everything I think. How to shift from regretting the past and fearing the future to abiding with what is. I think this, Lisa, is the part you were referring to. Yeah. And So how to shift from regretting the past and fearing the future to abiding with what is. In this case, a totally fucked up thing. The ultimate Mm. fucked up thing. I sat Mm. with that. I did not engage in this practice to prove something to myself or anyone else. I was not Mm. interested in flexing my spiritual muscles. I did it for Jenny. My willingness to stay present through the process was an act of devotion. By leaning into the horror and yielding to the sorrow, by standing in the fire of emptiness and saying yes to the mystery, I was honoring my daughter and expressing my ongoing love for her. It was not mere mindfulness practice. It was heartfulness practice. Do you know, when I was preparing for today, that was the very passage that came to me first, that that chapter <laughs> I opened randomly, of course. Uh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I opened it and it opened to that very page first. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Wow. So I really appreciate you sharing it without my paraphrasing because I think that you've answered this question that, you know, no matter what we're practiced in, you know, no matter what our background is, if we can just, I was only just speaking about this with a client yesterday, just know what you're devoted to. Know what, what am I committed to in this? Like when everything is just, you know, all up here and just too much, if you can just, 
know what am I committed to in this? And even if it's I'm committed, as you said, devoted to to doing it for Jenny or I'm committed to just, you could be committed to breathing for, yeah. you know what I mean? But, yeah. but this knowing that gives you an anchor, I think. Mm. Do you think? That's beautiful, Lisa. Yeah, spoken like a true bhakti yogini. <laughs> He's the one who <laughs> understands the power of, of devotion to strip away all our opinions on the matter and stay yeah. in the land of, of the heart. And it's true, you mentioned it earlier, that when we experience radical grief and just profound loss, the spiritual practices and beliefs that we use yeah. to guide us before usually don't hold up anymore, especially belief systems. But but definitely yeah. certain prescribed prayers and, and particular practices, not only do they often not hold up in the face of that kind of fire, but they they frequently strike us as being ridiculous or even offensive. Like how yeah. how dare they they whoever they is yeah um, it, you know per, uh, insist that or suggest suggest that yes. saying yeah. the Lord's prayer or <laughs> meditating on my chakras is going to yeah. fix. My shattered soul, and so really, yeah. well, I think what our souls demand in those moments of such profound sorrow is not to be fixed, but to be witnessed, exactly. to be mm. to hold ourselves in in a place of loving witness. And often, when mm. we experience tragedy and and loss, there's there's an element of of um, shame or guilt. You know, whether it's the death of a loved one or being left in a relationship, which is excruciating pain. I don't know mm-hmm. of anything almost more painful than, than the ending of a relationship that we're very attached to. Because there's something about death that's, like, not personal. It's so final. Yeah. And it blows everything else apart. That It's like you, it's, it's not uh, – there's much more stickiness in the end of a relationship yeah. and that kind of grief. But whatever the loss may be, the loss of health due to a serious diagnosis, um, mm-hmm. financial, a great financial loss, loss of a home, loss of a community, all of these things mm. are, are kind of invitations to sit in the fire and allow it to transform us. But there are also spaces mm. in which conventional tactics and methods um, for navigating this, the inner life do not really work anymore. And so mm-hmm. John of the Cross in The Dark Night of the Soul says, guess what? If those things stop working, you're not supposed to try to fill in the blanks. You're not supposed to rush yeah. in to, to repair the emptiness. You're actually mm. invited to be in that empty, dark space and allow yourself to rest, really rest, and let yourself down into the arms of not knowing anything. Exactly, and I think that, as you're saying that, I was just feeling, and that's the hardest thing is, is not knowing. Because when when something dies, we we have no idea. Yeah. No matter what, you know, at, at the core of it, we ju- we don't know, and yet. 
not knowing, I think, is one of the most uh, difficult places for people to be, you myself included. I don't know how this will go or I don't know what to do, you know, without my loved one or like that, not knowing. Yeah. When, when we can somehow learn to relax, open as not knowing, yeah. then that's really where I feel that our, that's where our soul, that's where love is, is really free, really free to move through us in ways that we certainly would have never expected. And I think also it speaks to, you know, this three-step process or the, you know, the, the puja that you're going to be doing every day or the chant that you're going to be praying every day. I think if we can also, I, for me, I, I now kind of approach it with... <laughs> Uh, just a sincere understanding that it's not going to fix anything. <laughs> but mm. you know, because I think we do that. You know, we uh, this we we go to something because we want it to fix something. Yeah. If we can somehow practice that, not knowing, don't you mm. think that then even when we approach something, we don't kind of put ourselves into the false illusion that you know this will save us. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Right, it makes life deeper and richer to do those beautiful, ancient, um, timeless spiritual practices. And they fill our hearts and they and they mm-hmm. make our souls strong and beautiful. And mm-hmm. it's not about fixing. And I think exactly. that's such an important point, Lisa, that you made, that practicing not knowing then mm-hmm. is really what will save us when we come to those big life experiences, when we are mm. complete, completely brought to our knees and everything we ever uh, thought we knew about mm. the divine, about God, about our spiritual lives, about ourselves, is um, taken, mm. you know, is taken from us. And, Can I ask and I, you? Mm. Oh, go on. Well, I was just thinking about all the small ways that we can practice that well, yeah, that's day. what I was going to ask you is do you have, because I have visions of, I live on the beach, so one yeah. of the ways that I practice surrender into not knowing is I lie on my back and float in the ocean. So I don't know where I am in the ocean. I don't know what's beneath wow. me. <laughs> and that, yeah, and so some days I'm great at it, no problem, I'm totally really, other days I'm like, there's a shark beneath me, am I going to bump yeah. into, you know, yeah. right? So I was going to ask you, how do you have ways that you practice relaxing into that not knowing? Mm. Because I think it's really good. I, I really believe what you were saying about um, uh, stories and sharing your your personal experience. Because I think we learn by immersion, by you know being with each other and, and hearing someone else's story, going oh. And she floats on the ocean, you know, I have this thing about bugs, so I could lie on the grass and that would be a, a practice of, of, you know, mm-hmm. opening into not knowing if an ant's going to crawl. I mean, do you know what I mean? It sounds yeah. silly, but we each have our own way. Mm-hmm. So what is it for you? Yeah, great, wonderful question. Well, I, um, you know, I think that, that when we're talking about people's personal stories, like for any of you who are expecting me to be some kind of enlightened being, 
guess what? I'm um, very, very human and neurotic. Um, well, I'm a little neurotic. I'm very human. And I um, noticed, like, recently, just in the last few days, as a matter of fact, that um, I was getting very combative, combative on Facebook. Mm. So I uh-huh. posted something very vulnerable and personal, which I don't often do. Um, and, in fact, it was about mm-hmm. my daughter. It was about I was at the gym. I was working out. And someone came into the gym, and she was saying, anybody want a teenager? Because I, I can't stand mine anymore. I'll, you know, you can have them for free. And she was mm-hmm. frustrated because he had a college application due. And just as she was leaving the house to come to the gym, he said, Mom, I haven't printed out the thing, and I need the other thing. And she, so she was irritated right. with him. And the, and the person who was teaching the class said, yeah, you know, if you can raise a live teenager, you've done great. And mm. the conversation just was like a sword in my heart. It's been 14 years since, since my 14-year-old daughter died, and, mm. and I'm mostly not actively grieving anymore. But there are mm. moments, I know a lot of you listening can relate to those triggers, where I'm triggered and my heart breaks all over again. Mm. But in this case, I got pissed off. So I came home <laughs> and I wrote an email. I mean, not an email, a Facebook post. I tried to make it. I knew I, I saw was that upset. post, yeah. You saw it. So yeah. I tried to make it, yeah. you know, not not blamey and judgy, but, you know, yeah. just speaking from my own experience. But there were and 90% of the responses, and there were tons of them, were compassionate, mm. but they all were acting like I was had just lost my child and they were so sorry for me, which isn't what I was looking for, but that's okay. Yeah. Um, but then yeah. there were a few, mostly by men, I just have to say, that were, like, trying mm. to correct my feelings. And it was... And so what I did was, did I let those go? No. I had to defend myself with all of the negative comments. I mean, how silly of me. I'm a 55-year-old woman. My daughter's been dead for 14 years. Like, get a grip, Mirabai. But no, I had to act like a rebellious adolescent and, and explain to them, yeah, to correct them. And yeah. then the next day I did another post. I can't remember what it was about. Oh, asking for a photographer to volunteer to to shoot a oh, event. Yeah. <laughs> you saw that too. Yeah. So then I yeah. was like criticized for daring to ask somebody to do something without pay. And so I had to go through yeah. and correct all those comments. And so there were two days in a row I was being this feisty, rebellious, defensive adolescent mm-hmm. is how I saw myself. Yeah. And I couldn't mm. stop. I couldn't stop. Yeah. And so I sat with that afterwards, going, okay, this is humiliating. And I showed up for my feeling of humiliation, mm. of vulnerability, mm. of having been ungraceful in how unskillful in how I handled human relations and unprofessional in some ways because I was so personal, although I think that's okay. But all of those feelings of of being wrong, of not being good enough, that is yeah. such a beautiful opportunity to do this showing up practice. That is yeah. a spiritual practice in and of itself. So I didn't turn from it. I didn't beat the mm. shit out of myself. I did a little bit, mm. but mostly what I did was I just took my sweet little self into my own arms and said, tell me, you know, what are you feeling? How is this? Yeah. I just made space for myself, and it was a truly mm. spiritual experience for me. 
Do you know what I think is so powerful about that is I think, and I think especially as 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 women, I can't speak as a man because I'm a woman, but you know we're so conditioned to be aware of how everyone else is feeling. Yeah. I think that the very act of first of all. Um, turning toward yourself and how you're feeling is so important. I, I have a phrase that I have my my clients say I get them to stand in the mirror and, you know, when a lot of feelings come up and literally it's, it's just saying, Lisa, I get that you feel that. I get mm-hmm. it. So there's no, I don't need to know why, you know, because I, mm-hmm. I, I get that you, I get that you feel mm-hmm. that. That's great. I've got you in this and you've got this. It's like a three. You know what I mean? Because sometimes I do need to look at myself in the mirror and go, you know, this is just, it's too much. And if I can just remember, I get that you feel this, you know. And then once you've done that for yourself, it's much easier to look at an intimate partner or anyone else or the world and go, I because I get that I feel this, I get that you feel that too. And, that, you know, there's just that very simple of just getting it mm. is showing up. But I think yeah. what you articulated that was so powerful is is the practice of showing up for yourself, yeah. getting that, that, not why, or but just getting that you, that you feel like a rebellious teenager, that you feel pissed off, that you feel agonized, that you feel whatever it is. Misunderstood. Yeah. Misunderstood, absolutely. Yeah. And because when you get it, always what's underneath arises. Right. You know, what's really going on has a chance to arise. That's, so then, that's then beautiful. I, and it's also this witnessing that mm-hmm. then happens so that you don't just buy into all your thoughts about it yeah like I understood Mm. that because I've practiced this showing up thing that the thoughts Mm. are just thoughts and the feelings are just feelings they're not like ultimate Mm -hmm. reality because I think when we Mm. buy into those things and can tell ourselves certain stories and convince ourselves of their truth we get either very self-righteous or very self-blaming and then we're like lost in it yeah whereas if we can just kind of step back and smile at ourselves through our participation in the human condition, mm. it's, it's much more um, spacious. And that space yeah. is what we're going to need when the real shit comes, which it's going to do. Yeah. It has in the past and it will again. Yeah, and much more loving. Which leads me to ask a question about story. So... Because in this new age world, we do live in a world where somehow there is this messy mix of personal development and spiritual practice and transfiguration. I mean, they've kind of, you know, morphed um, space. You know, they've become, they've shared, they're now sharing space somehow. Yeah. Yeah. And so you work with people to write their stories. Mm-hmm. And you've written your own. Mm-hmm. So when when does our story matter? And when do we just let the story, quote, unquote, go? Right. I think that's a really precious discernment for people. Exactly. Beautifully articulated, Lisa. Um, right. So I think that the that the magic, the alchemy happens when we do tell our stories 
authentically, when we don't try to, as my friend said, make ourselves look pretty, but when we yeah. when we go for that vein of of authenticity that's coursing in our bodies and begging for us to to bear witness. And mm-hmm. so I do a lot of writing practices. So what I do is I make a list in a notebook or on my computer um, of topics as writing prompts, and they're usually memories. So they mi- it might be some obscure your minor memory from childhood or from yesterday or it might be uh, something that was a profound life-changing moment or, or event so I don't judge them I don't rate them I just make a list mm-hmm. of all of these memories that I that I would like to write about and then I use them as prompts and I give myself a 10-minute timed writing this is a method that I derive really from my my teacher Natalie Goldberg. I mean she was literally my my teacher when I was a kid. Natalie Goldberg is the author of Writing Down oh, the Bones. Oh, you mentioned her in the book. Yeah. Yes, and many other books. So she's kind of a a major teacher on writing as a spiritual practice. Um so she uses this very simple method where you just you just get have a writing prompt and you write for for a timed period. 10 minutes, mm-hmm. 20 minutes, 30 minutes, something like that. So that's how I actually wrote my entire book. Was it all started with all of these timed writing practices, and that is a, a way to practice this authentic truth telling that I'm talking about. So as you're writing, say you're writing about your grandmother's matzo ball soup. That's for me. I'm Jewish. Mm-hmm. Um, I might be writing a memory of the smell of matzo ball soup in my grandmother's kitchen, and that might trigger some other thing about me that now and or about me then um and maybe something will arise that is uncomfortable like the time that my father I was at my grandmother's house and my father showed up drunk right mm-hmm. I mean I'm making this up although it's entirely mm-hmm. possible that something like that would have happened um, <laughs> and and so I'm but wait I've got this sweet story about grandma's matzo ball soup I can't ruin it with daddy stumbling into the house, embarrassing uh. But that uncomfortable feeling is information about what the story that really needs to be told, and I go there. So instead of steering away from it, I steer into it, and I oh, show up so for that good. and allow it to do what it needs to do. Is that going to make it into the published piece? Who knows? It's none of my business. Mm. When I'm writing... Yeah. I am being present for what's underneath, as you so beautifully said earlier, mm-hmm. the the surface level of of experience and coming down to the deeper thing that reveals itself when we are present, um, as you mm-hmm. as you said. And so that's when writing practice becomes spiritual practice. Very powerful um, way to to not only connect with what's really in our souls, but to connect with the whole of of humanity, the whole of the human experience. I mean, one of the things that my tragedies have taught me, especially the death of my daughter, is that I'm not special. Like, instead of rendering me some kind of elite human because I have a dead daughter, yeah. it connected me with all all of humanity. It made me humbler and more... Yeah. I, I took my rightful place 
in at the table mm-hmm. of of humanity in a way that I maybe never had before. And as a result of that feeling of interconnectedness, I felt more welcome here on Earth, strangely, than mm-hmm. I had ever felt. Like, I belong here. This is just all mm-hmm. of us having this experience and doing the best we can to take care of each other and wake each other up and mm-hmm. and be present in a loving way when we each go through the inevitable um, sorrows of life. And they are inevitable. I think that's the, that's the thing, isn't it? There's, there will be um, agony, there will be ecstasy, and they're all unavoidable. So yes. learning how to be with not knowing, learning how to turn toward I love the writing practice actually I'm, I'm, that's, I'm going to take that up myself because I've been doing something similar but without the 10 minute discipline yeah, good. <laughs> I'm, gonna, I'm going to add that in and this Wonderful. is what I want to do there's a there's a, uh, someone has their hand up to ask a question so what I want to do now if you're okay with it is to just invite questions of course so I'm about to open the line so if you are listening in via the phone, um, I already have one hand raised and I'm going to open your line in a moment. That's John Ridinor. I hope I've pronounced that correctly. So I'll open your line in a minute. Oops, you've opened your own line. <laughs> okay, so John, we'll take your question. And if anyone else has a question, just raise your hand by pressing star two. Uh, and if you want to type in a question, you're very welcome to as well. So John, welcome. Hi, John. Uh, I don't know. I really yes, didn't have a the... question. Oh, didn't you? Okay. Did you have something that you wanted to share? Well, yeah, I could. Um, my name is Gene. It's Gene. Gene, yeah, G-E-N-E. Um, Hi, Gene. Gene. Hi. Hey, um... What I what I thought in listening to both of your conversation, which kind of dovetails with what Mirabai was saying about the tablehood or the the table of humanity, um, I've been through a few of the things. Like uh, Lisa mentioned, her father died last November. Well, so did my dad. Mm, and um, I've certainly not lost a daughter, but I know what it feels like to wake up uh, at 5 o'clock in the morning and open the door to your 13-year-old daughter's room and the window's wide open and she doesn't come home for five days. Oh, and, oh and Because she got pregnant and didn't know how to approach me. Oh, uh, so so I know you know I I I I just think that um, the thing that just tied it all up for me was that um, never taking the time to just uh, sit with those uh, all of those hurts and mm. uh, even my own going back to when. Uh, I, uh, I'm 56, and when I was uh, six years old, I was molested, 
uh, in a van going out west uh, with my whole family present. Mm. And so, you know, living with all that, I have never uh, taken the time to just sit with that. Not, you know, it's always been, uh, I'm trying to fix this. I'm trying to figure out why this happened or what can I do to make this pain go away or, you know, whatever. And I've never really, and I'm just now learning that you really, probably silence is your best friend sometimes. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Well, I'm so glad this is resonating with you, Jean. And I bow to you for what you've been through and and your willingness, your cura- your courageous willingness to be present for what is. And you're absolutely right. The silence is often the space that we need to connect and show up and be present for what is. If we fill in the, the emptiness with a lot of words, we often will totally miss what really needs to unfold. So deep bow to you, my friend. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much, Jean. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I'm going to mute Jean's line. So uh, we still have a bunch of people on the line. So if you have a question for Mirabai or something that you want to share, please press star 2 to raise your hand. Uh, press it slowly so the computer gets that you're pressing star two. So just press star two, raise your hand. Um, And I have gone into the webcast question box nearby and Barbara Miley, I hope I'm pronouncing that, um, says that uh, she's really looking forward. She posted this beforehand that she's really looking forward to being on the call and um, so hopefully she's listening via the webcast. Great. So while, let me just refresh and let me see if there are any more hands that have come up. Let's have a look. Okay, so while we're waiting to see if someone else will raise their hand, my question then, you know, like I said to you, Mirabai, when I was preparing for today, the heartfulness chapter was the very first one. And the second chapter was where literally two things just leaped off the page. And I wanted to share them just to see if you have something that really you want to share about them. Because I just think they're so rich in teaching as they are. And the first one is so simple. And it's our only task is to stop trying so hard and simply be. Mm. And I think that for so many of us, it's so simple. And yet somehow (laughs) it can be the, the hardest thing to just simply be, you know, How do you just be when it feels agonizing? Or how do you be when you're in the company of someone that 
you feel intimidated by or you know I mean all these different ways that we do this and then I just want to acknowledge that I see that someone's raised their hand and I'll take your question in a second do you have anything just quick that you would say to that Mirabai? Well that's the path of the spiritual warrior is what I think you know mm. it's, it's really courageous to um, to be with difficult feelings and not try to change them necessarily but bear bear yeah. witness and be curious and um, mm. allow before we make any effort to you know to fix fix it as if it were broken we're conditioned to use our spiritual yeah. tricks and techniques as if they were you know um, band-aids to yes. slap over <laughs> something that a gaping wound and what we really need mm. to do is let that wound breathe the air and pay attention to what's happening. Mm. It's about attention. I love that. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm going to open the line. So this is a caller who you've last three digits of 483. And I'm going to ask you, Mirabai needs to finish right on time today. She's got another um, uh, appointment that she needs to go to. So I'm going to open your line. So you're live on the show and your last three digits are 483. Go ahead. Hi, can you hear me? Yes, hello. Yes. Oh, hi, Lisa, Sasha. Oh, hi, Sasha. Sasha is one of my clients hi. in New Zealand. So welcome, hi. meet Mirabai. Hi there, Sasha. Hi. hi, nice to meet you. I'm just listening in. I have to say I... I um, I, I missed the beginning, but um, yeah, I find it really interesting um, what you're talking about. And I just had a question. I know um, I'll be quite quick because I know you're in time. Um, mm. What would you? Um, what would you? Um, how would you give a, as a parent? Because I heard your parents said sorry, but you're still a parent to me. How? Yes, how you. would you? <laughs> how would you? Translate this into um, your role as a parent in raising your children, and because um, um, I'm a parent myself, and I'm always interested in that. Like you would say, you go through it, and you not look the other way, but you just go through it. But how would you teach children to um, handle that overwhelming feeling? Mm. Oh wow, that's such a great question, and I just don't know how to do a brief summary of that. <laughs> how to answer that in one minute? <laughs> Right, because it's hard enough to um, to manage the raging child within ourselves. But what what about when you have a child who's either very angry or very sad and doesn't see a way beyond the pure influx of feelings that are overwhelming them? Um, yeah, yeah. I I just feel like the only thing we can do is is not turn away from them, even though they're probably, uh, you know, almost 100% likely to be triggering us, um, mm-hmm. either our own sense of hopelessness or uh, or offendedness or whatever it may be. But if we cannot mm-hmm. turn away from them and let them have um, their feelings and not try to correct them, but mm-hmm. just be there for them, say, I know this is overwhelming, I know this is messed up, and um, mm. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. And there's nothing wrong with you for feeling it. This is totally the human, the human experience. You're having it, and I've, I'm having it too. And here I am. 
but just so that mm. you're not, and I know I can tell from the from your very voice, Sasha, you would never shame, or not on purpose, shame your child for having the feelings that they're having. But just letting them know that it's perfectly understandable, even if it's not, <laughs> that yeah. they get to have the human experience. Yeah. And sometimes that's mm. so, so reassuring. I mean, both of my daughters have have expressed to me in the past um, that just letting them know that this is normal and okay when it didn't feel either normal or okay to them was mm-hmm. so reassuring. Yeah. Mm, cool. Okay. Well, thank you very much. It's, it's awesome listening yeah. to you. Thank you, my dear. Thank Be you. well. Yeah. Thank you, Sasha. Okay, thanks, Lisa. All right. See So, Mirabai, thank you so much for everything that you shared today. It's just been such a, a, a privilege and a gift to just share space and uh, to dive into to your work and really to share it so that we can all uh, turn toward how we're feeling, turn toward what life is giving us as uh, fantastic or as agonizing as it, as it might be feeling. Mm. And I want to, uh, I know that you have on your website some amazing writing workshops coming up as well and other events. So I just want to encourage um, those of you who are listening to go to mirrorbystar.com And if you do not have Caravan of No Despair yet, grab it because grab it and create space for yourself to to really dive into it because it's such such a transformational and exquisitely powerful book. So thank you, Mirabai, for being here. Mm, Thank you, Lisa, for getting it so deeply. I truly feel like you're a soul sister. It's wonderful to uh, share this time with you. Yeah, thank you. Deep bow and uh, deep bow to all of you who are listening, whether you're listening live or to the podcast in years to come. And uh, thank you very much from us. It's bye for now. Bye-bye. You're listening to a recording by Lisa Page. For further information about events, programs, or mentoring, please visit www.lisapage.com. That's L-I-S-A-P-A-G-E dot com.